Welcome to Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast offering news, analysis and commentary. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. This is episode 147, and it's 22nd of November, 2020. How has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? Pretty good. Um, We had a nice double dip, because we had the um, Lego Star Wars Holiday Special, which was rather Mm -hmm. delightful. And we also had the Mandalorian. And yeah, we're going to be talking about both. So it should be a more substantial episode than the ones we've had in previous weeks. Love a good holiday special. Yeah. No, it's very interesting. You could do like a detailed like comparison between the 1978 holiday special and the new one. Um, <laughs> suffice to say, the new one is significantly more polished. <laughs> but does it have the same charm? That's a good question. I'd say it has charm, but a very different kind of charm. Yeah. Yeah. They're apples and oranges, really, aren't they? They really are. So I'd say, like, the 1978 holiday special, it's almost a bit creepy. Like, it like gives like shivers down the spine a bit in certain ways. Like, it freaks me out a bit. Um, and this <laughs> new holiday special isn't like that at all. It's very cosy and family-friendly. So. Yeah, it's extremely wholesome. <laughs> Yeah, you don't get like Wookiees watching porn in this new one. <laughs> oh god, <laughs> there's literally a thing that happens. I know, but I do, I do love the holiday special. <laughs> I'm sorry. I think the best Thanksgiving present Disney could have given us is to put the original holiday special on Disney Plus. Yes, okay, that is. This is what we wanted, Disney. Yeah, but they're cowards. <laughs> that obviously won't happen. So, yeah. I did enjoy the Lego one, and we'll get into it, but. Yeah, I'll always have a special place in my heart for the 78. <laughs> yeah, no, it was a magical experience. And I really love doing that episode of the podcast with you, Kirsty, because everything's best when you share. And that's a very nice <laughs> message for the festive season. Um, okay, cool. So there's a lot to cover. So let's get right into it. Um, so in the news section, the first thing we want to cover is actually quite a serious story, to be honest, with real world implications. Um, and it's about my personal fave, Star Wars author, Alan Dean Foster. And I honestly want to be serious because obviously in the past I've spoken about Alan Dean Foster and it's been a bit in the spirit of fun because he has all these eccentricities and these interesting ways of expressing things in his writing because he's the person who wrote the novelizations of Star Wars, Splinter of the Mind's Eye and The Force Awakens. But... Like, I do sincerely think he's a nice bloke, you know, and he's a really interesting, enthusiastic, passionate guy who loves Star Wars and has done, like, really good jobs on the novels that he has written. Um, and, yeah, the news, unfortunately, is that Disney seemed to have been denying him royalties for the first two books that he wrote for Star Wars, which are the novelization of the original film. And then the sort of pseudo-sequel to the original film, Splinter of the Mind's Eye, um, so yeah, he has written a letter that's essentially an open letter to Disney, but it's been published via the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, um, who are sort of like a union representing authors in that genre. And yeah, I was wondering, could you read the letter, Kirsty? So I think it's worth reading in full. Mm-hmm. Dear Mickey, we have a lot in common, you and I. We share a birthday, November 18th. My dad's nickname was Mickey. There's more. When you purchased Lucasfilm, you acquired the rights to some books I wrote. Star Wars, the novelization of the very first film. Splinter of the Mind's Eye, the first sequel novel. You owe me royalties on these books. You stopped paying them. When you purchased 20th Century Fox, you eventually acquired the rights to other books I'd written. The novelizations of Alien, Aliens, and Alien 3. 
you've never paid royalties on any of these or even issued royalty statements for them. All these books are all still very much in print. They still earn money for you. When one company buys another, they acquire its liabilities as well as its assets. You're certainly reaping the benefit of the assets. I'd very much like my minuscule, though it's not small to me, share. You want me to sign an NDA before even talking. I've signed a lot of NDAs in my 50-year career. Never once did anyone ever ask me to sign one prior to negotiations. For the obvious reason that once you sign, you can no longer talk about the matter at hand. Every one of my representatives in this matter, with many, many decades of experience in such business, echo my bewilderment. You continue to ignore requests from my agents. You continue to ignore queries from SFWA, the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. You continue to ignore my legal representatives. I know this is what gargantuan corporations often do. Ignore requests and inquiries hoping the petitioner will simply go away, or possibly die. But I'm still here and I'm still entitled to what you owe me. Including not to be ignored, just because I'm only one lone writer. How many other writers and artists out there are you similarly ignoring? My wife has serious medical issues, and in 2016 I was diagnosed with an advanced form of cancer. We could use the money. Not charity, just what I'm owed. I've always loved Disney. The films, the parks, growing up with the Disneyland TV show. I don't think Uncle Walt would approve of how you're tr currently treating me. Maybe someone in the right position just hasn't received the word. Though after all these months of ignored requests and queries, that's hard to countenance. Or as a guy named Bob Iger said, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. I'm not feeling it. Alan Dean Foster. Yeah, so I think Alan perfectly summarises the situation in that letter. And honestly, I'm disgusted by how he's been treated in this situation. It's totally out of order. And yeah, it just seems to be this deeply cynical attempt to brush him under the carpet, essentially, thinking that he's too small, you know, to actually bother with. And yeah, as Alan says, that they probably think they can just get away with it by ignoring him and ignoring him and ignoring him. And I'm honestly really, really proud of Alan for standing up for himself like this, you know, and saying, no, you're in the wrong. You owe me these royalties, pay me them. So, yeah, serious, serious respect for the guy. Yeah, it's really terrible. And, you know, it makes me feel guilty for having bought these books since Disney bought them. Yeah. Because I know that he has not received the royalties for them now and he deserves that. Yeah. Um, and it sets a really dangerous precedent, as I'm sure a lot of people have been pointing out, that this is so much bigger than Alan himself, even though, of course, that matters that he's not receiving that money. If if Disney were to get away with this, all any of these big companies would have to do is sell to a sister company the rights, and then all of a sudden these contracts would just be void and the authors wouldn't get paid. Yeah. It has huge potential ramifications, basically, because, yeah, if any court in the land were to say that what Disney is doing is okay, then, yeah, as Kirsty says, you're basically greatly diminishing the rights of authors in almost every context and that's quite a terrifying prospect so yeah it's really yeah. it's really trashy and i i've i've said this to you already but like the fact that alan dean foster was involved in the relaunch of star wars under the disney umbrella when he wrote the force awakens novelization somehow makes it worse because presumably they're paying him for that and the fact that he helped out with that relaunch and you know the fact that they sought the first guy who wrote a Star Wars novel to come back to help with that. 
and then to treat him like this is just so horrible yeah it's really wrong and especially at a time when that money would be really important to him you know like because of these like health struggles that he and his wife are having and like obviously that's not really the point you know so he would deserve the money regardless of what his health was like but i think it makes it extra despicable you know that this is an older man at this point and yeah he could really do with that money and disney's this like multi-billion corporation and sure it's been a hard year because of covid etc but don't tell me that they cannot afford to pay royalties because they clearly can and yeah it's just a really bad look for them and i hope sincerely that it's addressed quickly because yeah no one should have to write this sort of letter essentially it should be taken for granted that if you have a contract stating that you get royalties then you are paid those royalties according to the contract and that should include if the company that owns the novels is sold to another company because yeah as alan says when you purchase another company you inherit the liabilities as well as the assets so yeah it's not hard yeah so i know both of us are going to be paying attention to what happens with this case and um we'll cover any developments and just hope for the best for alan yeah exactly i'm definitely going to be keeping a close eye on it cool so let's move into the next piece that we have which is about daisy ridley and some comments she has given on ray's ending in the rise of skywalker and also the surprising revelation that she actually watches the mandalorian I know that's quite nice that she watches it because she wasn't a Star Wars fan before starring in it. Yeah, no, definitely. I was honestly surprised. Like, I got the impression from her that when she was, like, done with all the press for Tross that she dearly wanted a break away from everything Star Wars. So, yeah, it's nice that she watches it. And I guess it must be quite relaxing to think, ah, Star Wars where I'm not involved. How chill. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I can empathise with that. Yeah, could you read out her comments about the ending of The Rise of Skywalker, please, Kirsty? Mm-hmm. I think this was in response to them asking her about whether she would come back to do more with Rey after this, right? Yes, I think that's right. And also these comments are from an interview she gave to IGN. I think for me, the beauty of episode 9 is it ends with such hope and such potential. I just feel like that was Rey's perfect ending. The big battle was in episode 7, 8 and 9, Ridley said. I think really she's probably running around the forest somewhere having a great time. She continued, I feel totally, totally satisfied with how that story finished. I just don't know what else she could do that I didn't have to do. Also, there are so many amazing characters in Star Wars that it's sort of an amazing thing. I was watching the new episode of Mandalorian, and it's just like the places it can go beyond, even where it is now, is so exciting. Yeah, so I wanted to address this on the podcast because these comments have predictably because twitter is twitter um proven a bit controversial um with certain segments of the fan base and i think i just wanted to put in my two pennies worth which is i think these comments make complete sense from her and they're totally consistent with everything she was saying around the time that episode nine was being promoted so these comments were like completely non-dramatic to me and totally expected essentially exactly that's kind of what she was saying when they were promoting the rise of skywalker she was like it's really satisfying it leaves ray at a perfect point i feel like it's also important to remember various things about how different daisy's experience of making the films is 
from the viewer's experience of watching the films and the way she must have a totally different type of investment in those films because of that because she doesn't just think about episode 9 and think oh in the context of Ray's arc and all these relationships she's formed and all the experiences she's had I don't feel this resolution is particularly emotionally authentic that might be the sort of thought process Kirsty or I might have but I think for Daisy it's yeah in episode 9 I really enjoyed making that film it was a really great time with JJ I really had a great time hanging out with my friends John and Oscar again and I feel like Ray got a really nice ending like where she got that like catharsis of seeing Luke and Leia at the end and she got her own lightsaber and that's a really nice way of rounding off her ending you know I think she just approaches it with this completely different framework from what we do as fans and I think that's totally legitimate and totally cool so I think she's absolutely entitled to think this way basically of course and I also feel like it's important to contextualize it because it is within this context of comparing it to how John Boyega talked about his experiences. Yeah. Because I think if we know that Daisy is aware of of John's feelings and his experiences, and when he's talking about the difference between the level of nuance that her character and Adam's character were given in their arcs compared to Finn's, she's going to be conscious of that. And I don't think that would leave her much room to complain, honestly. Um, So, you know, I believe her when she says she finds it satisfying. She's said that many times before. And I know that there are lots of fans who feel that same way too. And that's great. Um, But I don't think she's going to turn around and say anything bad about it at this point, you know, because she knows that, that her privilege granted her that experience in a way that unfortunately it didn't go that way for john yeah or let's face it any of the other lead cast members of color yeah so no that's a really good point and i think it would come across very badly (laughs) to be honest to like speak about the experiences if she had been shortchanged at all because yeah in terms of like the attention and the priority she was given in the narrative she was absolutely number one in that series of films, basically. Which makes sense, because she was the protagonist, but unfortunately, to a disproportionate degree, it meant that other characters were shortchanged and that their arcs were essentially cut off before they should have been and they weren't given that depth and nuance that they deserved and that the actors were clearly capable of delivering on. Yeah. The Rise of Skywalker is also quite a tricky film to talk about and we we have gone over this many times so I know we're just kind of repeating it for people who've already listened but it, it seems clear to me that the intent of the ending of the Rise of Skywalker is that it is satisfying and hopeful and filled with potential for Rey's future. Yes. It doesn't it doesn't succeed in that in my opinion but I think that's the goal. So it kind of just comes down to whether each person individually buys into that because you can see that that's what they're trying to do with Rey. It's like, you know, she has, she she succeeded. She beat the villain. She takes the new family name that she deserves and she buries her master's sabers and she sees them looking on with fondness and approval and she heads toward the sunrise and, and off to a new adventure, presumably. So on paper... 
you know that that's what that is it might not work for us as individuals but i can't argue with her that that was the goal of that yeah exactly and it's also got to be respected that for some people that goal did come off and people did feel like that emotional catharsis that they clearly wanted to achieve with the ending and like for anyone who felt that i think that's awesome and i'm really really glad that it worked for those people um because yeah like i don't want my negative impression of the resolution of that film to take away or delegitimize anyone else's experience of that ending i'm envious of people who love it (laughs) yeah i would love to guys could you donate your um love for it please (laughs) <laughs> have a transfusion of love for the ending of Tross. <laughs> I'll take but that. I think I think Daisy should be proud of her performance and her work because yeah. she's great. She is really good and I think whatever problems the Rise of Skywalker might have, I think that Daisy did a really fantastic job with her performance in that film. She was fantastic. It was some of her best acting in sequels, especially in certain scenes. So, yeah, she did really well. Um, and also just one other point I want to bring up is it's also very important to remember what Kirsty said at the beginning about this, which is that here Daisy is responding essentially to the question of, oh, would you continue Ray's story in a future film? And I think she's also, just beyond Star Wars, she wants to act in other things. She doesn't want to just be defined as Ray for the rest of her career. So she's trying to be very respectful and appreciative of the experience she was given and the character she got to play. But at the same time, she's trying to put that to bed so that she can leave herself open to other roles and other experiences. And that's 100% understandable too, because yeah, no actor just wants to be one character for the rest of their careers. Yeah. I don't think he has been asked about this, but I can imagine that Adam Driver would probably give a very similar response. Mm. (laughs) You know, like, oh, it was great. We're all happy with it. Moving on. Yeah, I'd be fascinated (laughs) to see what Adam were to say if he were asked, dead, like, if he were directly asked, how do you feel about the way your character's story ended in Star Wars? Like, I would be fascinated. But again, I agree with you. He'd probably just be very diplomatic and (laughs) non-committal. Well, the, yeah, because they're, like you said at the beginning, they're coming at it from an angle of like, well, I don't want to give people false hope if I don't really have any intention of coming back. Yeah. And also, if if they did come back eventually, they kind of want to keep the upper hand in the negotiations. <laughs> so don't, don't maybe appear too interested. Yep, <laughs> exactly. There's something to be said about playing hard to get. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. So then, finally, we have some comments from John Bayega, um, who is promoting Small Axe, the Steve McQueen anthology series. And I've watched, actually, the first episode of that, which is called Mangrove. Um, so it's showing on the BBC in the UK at the moment. And it's really, really great. Because basically what Steve McQueen has done, he's made five films. And they are, honestly, theatrical quality movies. They're incredible. Um, and they're being shown like in consecutive weeks on the BBC. Um, and yeah, if Mangrove is anything to go by, I'm super stoked for the rest of the films because Mangrove was just wonderful. You know, it's so powerful. It's just really great. And I'm very excited for John's episode. Um, mm, I think they're on Amazon Prime in the US. Yes, that's um, what I read too. Yeah. So yeah. So I hope to watch that soon. Yeah, people everywhere should be able to enjoy them. So yeah, it's awesome quality entertainment. Well, entertainment's probably the wrong word, but just great drama. 
Um, yeah, so I hope people get to check them out. Um, but yeah, could you read out John's comments, please, Kirsty? John Boyega's Star Wars castmates had his back after he spoke out in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. Entertainment Tonight's Kevin Frazier spoke to the 28-year-old actor, who revealed that Daisy Ridley and Oscar Isaac were among the co-stars to express their full support of him following his impassioned speech at a London protest. I'm really close to my castmates, specifically Oscar and Daisy, he said. I've had really transparent and lovely conversations that I will never forget in my career, so we were already speaking about things. Me saying this was not a shock to them, but they did text me to say they support me. Many people in the industry have reached out to have these transparent conversations. That has really, really helped, he added. Despite the support he received from the cast, Boyega is unsure if he'd return to the Star Wars franchise in the future. I don't know what's going on with Star Wars, he said. I think while I'm alive, that's one thing, but it would just depend on story, and it would depend whether Daisy and Oscar are coming back. I wouldn't want to be running around by myself or anything. Yeah, it's fascinating to me how John's way of speaking about the prospect of coming back has changed so radically in the space of a few months. Um, And it's not surprising, so I think it's all clearly tied to the conversation he had with Disney after, like, the initial frank comments he had about his experience of working on star wars um but yeah like it is honestly heartening to me to see that he does seem to be so like up for the prospect now obviously not straight away because he has a really good career and he has all these other opportunities but i think it's clear that if the right story were to emerge and daisy and oscar were to come back as well i think he'd totally be down yeah and that's kind of what he's saying here um I guess it has been a while. I mean, everyone's going to have their own time frame, but it, we're coming up to a year of the the Rise of Skywalker being released, and it, then it'll have been even longer since they actually filmed them, and they all looked like they had a lot of fun making these films, and they're always going to feel a certain amount of fondness for them because, well, for for John and Daisy, you know, they they were so new to the industry, um, and I, I don't want to diminish you know, the negative things that John has said and experienced about them, but it's obviously not all bad for him. He makes the point of saying how fortunate he is and how he's made these great friends and he had a lot of fun and he learned a lot. Um, So as he said, I feel like if they got the story right for him in in a way that he felt like did the character justice, I guess he would be on board at some point. Yeah, no, exactly. This is really nice to see. So let's move on. And the next thing we're going to talk about, and the first of our biggest discussions, I suppose, um, is going to be about the Lego Star Wars Holiday Special. Um, So yeah, this was a really nice treat to have alongside the regular schedule of The Mandalorian. So it was our double dose of Star Wars for the week. What were your general feelings about this special, Kirsty? I enjoyed it. Um... Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Very wholesome. It was lovely to see these characters again. Um, there's there's some moments that stand out. Like, uh, we'll, we'll get into it. But I, I just, I don't know. Like, obviously it was very silly. So it's, it feels almost silly to even talk about it. <laughs> but yeah, there were just some great moments. Like Vader fighting himself on half. I just thought that was really funny and charming. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, no, like you say, um, it's obviously a very silly special, you know, it's something that doesn't take itself remotely seriously for like 95% of the time. Um, And yeah, it's hard to talk about comedy, you know, when it is straight comedy like this in a very substantial way. But 
there are some interesting ideas and there's some interesting points of engagement, shall we say, with the Rise of Skywalker that I want to go into a bit. Um, So yeah, I guess one of the most significant things about this special in terms of how it intersects with the Rise of Skywalker and where that film leaves off is that the special starts with Rey training Finn to be a Jedi, basically. And the whole premise of the special is that Rey feels inadequate and frustrated as a teacher. And so she has to go on this journey through space and time to try and learn about the relationships between masters and students so she can become a better master herself. That's the plot of the special in a nutshell, basically. And yeah, that was interesting to see because this isn't canon. <laughs> this is not going to go down in the annals of Stoll's history as the like definitive continuation of The Rise of Skywalker. But I feel like they've probably included this whole idea of Rey training Finn because that is a plot point we can realistically expect to see in future storytelling with those characters. Do you feel that's fair? Maybe. I mean, honestly, all of that stuff felt like it could have been like a an alternative to what we got in the rise of skywalker like that could have been something that they'd written early on as an early draft and scrapped Mm. because it lined up pretty well with what we saw in the last jedi you know she was pouring over the jedi sacred texts and studying upon all of them and figuring out what she was missing and finn could have easily been a jedi in training within the third movie of the trilogy yeah so that all fit i thought and yeah, I almost wish we could have got that in live action. <laughs> yeah, no, so basically you can watch the special and imagine that Rise of Skywalker does not exist. Um, well, <laughs> no, joking, no, joking. But on that note, though, one thing that was very interesting to me is that there are various acknowledgements of the events of the Rise of Skywalker in this special, but one place it does not go at all is that it has Palpatine and Rey interacting, but there's not even the sl- the slightest whisper of the idea mm. that Ray is Palpatine's granddaughter, which for many yeah, people is going to be a really great thing. <laughs> I, I, I understand the decision, but I thought that was a notable decision, basically. Do you, do you understand the decision? Can you explain that to me? Because I was a bit like, oh, it's weird that they're like pointing out the relations between everyone else, especially like Kylo and Vader and Luke and that. And then Ray, it's like it goes completely unacknowledged to the point where I was like, maybe it's just because they were working on this before the movie came out so but then they could have easily added something afterwards my what what do you think my sarky observation about that is it's because the whole idea of ray palpatine as a concept is just beyond parody it's so (laughs) stupid they didn't even know how to possibly incorporate that with like any coherence (laughs) i don't think lucasfilm see it that way (laughs) I've got to imagine the directors of the Lego special like um, have have our have backs. Taste. Yeah, have our taste. <laughs> yeah, but it, I thought that was interesting that that wasn't acknowledged at all because it would have been so easy for him to be like, oh, granddaughter. I mean, you know, wh- whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know you. Um, kind of how Vader does with Luke yeah. on Tatooine. But no, exactly. Yeah, it's, not at all. Because in other respects, like you said, Kirsty, it's very heavy on acknowledging the family relationships between people. Like, honestly, there was more acknowledgement of the fact that Luke is Kylo Ren's uncle in this than there is at any point in The Rise of Skywalker. So. It's not even mentioned in the... This is turning into more trash bashing. sorry. <laughs> I'm but... sorry, I'm sorry. It's been a while. See you, see you around, kid. 
we have it all pent up inside okay guys so you've got to be patient with us my plan was to move on and not really talk about trust much but this and the new episode of mandalorian mean that's a little unavoidable right now so sorry listeners yeah we can think of it as catharsis it's like group therapy like right. it doesn't it. hurt me anymore so that's good to good to know but um the the big thing for me pleasant surprise because i had rock bottom expectations and we'll go into our criticisms because i think those valid too but um the fact that there was even an acknowledgement of the sadness that ray would feel around the loss of ben yeah was huge i i was like oh my god this is the catharsis i needed yeah no (laughs) honestly i was so impressed that they even went there you know just hearing ray in that little voice go ben and she like goes through the portal (laughs) yeah and then she has to say bye ben when she leaves i'm like thank you that is all i needed from the movie itself you could have just had her say goodbye to him yeah and and also this like people are gonna laugh at me when they listen to this because i know this is going too far and taking a very silly thing way too seriously but just before the whole goodbye Ben bit, basically Kylo has been fighting Ray. You know, they've been having the lightsaber duel in action as like Palpatine watches on, you know, and he's expecting Kylo to kill Ray. And then like Kylo completely randomly drops the saber and he does the whole join me speech, you know, join me and mm. together we will rule the galaxy. You know, so it's like a repeat of the offer from The Last Jedi again. And the Kylo yeah. that they feature in this special... God, I sound so stupid saying this. Um, <laughs> he's the Kylo from just after the events of The Last Jedi, basically. So he's Kylo as Supreme Leader, like after Rey has rejected him. And right. that touched me because it just made me realise all over again, he like cares about her and wants to be with her so much you know like the fighting is just completely perfunctory to him and really what he wants in his heart of hearts is for Rey to be with him and for them to rule the galaxy together and it breaks my heart because I know how it ends (laughs) okay so that's some my indulgence basically so yeah (laughs) I'm done yeah no if we can find some glimmer of resolution and and the hope that Daisy and other fans feel at the end of The Rise of Skywalker, then we'll take it. Thank you, Holiday Special. Yeah. Okay, but criticisms. I feel a bit cheated by the promise of Rose being a main character. Oh, yeah. Yes, she technically had more screen time, in air quotes, um, than she did in that movie but that's not saying much and it doesn't mean that she was a lead it just means that she had more than a minute and 16 seconds on the screen yes i i thought they made a big miscalculation basically because they put out an interview in advance of the release of this special and there was a whole bit where they were asked about rose and they said oh yeah rose is so important she's like she saved the day I think is what they said about Rose in the special. And that's complete nonsense. Like Rose is left on the Falcon to help arrange the Life Day celebration. And it's like, yes, Rose is the sensible one. Rose is the one who makes sure that Poe doesn't completely fuck up. So you could argue that that is Rose saving the day in the context of the holiday special. But she isn't the one going on the adventure with Rey. You know, she doesn't have this huge plot critical role in the thing. And yeah, it it just shows that you can't trust these people. Um, Yeah, and even aside from Rose herself, I know you picked up on this and a lot of people did. There is a distinct lack of 
female characters on the journey that Rey takes through time. Yep. And I thought that would be the perfect opportunity to dive more into the Jedi Leia stuff. Yeah. No, 100%. It was a huge missed opportunity. And, like, it, it's obviously not intended. I don't think they wanted to do this. But what they've basically done is they have this whole idea of Rey time traveling and seeing all the relationships between significant masters and apprentices in the history of Star Wars, basically. And because of that, and like according to the version of Star Wars history that we see in this special, all the significant people in the history of the galaxy are men, mm. <laughs> basically. Because you see Leia, they mention Padme. And you see Janna and Zori, but none of those characters speak. None of them have any like role of any significance whatsoever. And it's just a big missed opportunity, especially when the character that you have traveling through time and witnessing all these characters and engaging with them is a woman herself. It's like, can you not give her at least one other female character to have some semblance of an interaction with? I feel like Ahsoka would have been an obvious choice. Yeah, Ahsoka... And I think you mentioned to me, Kirsty, as well, that there's all this emphasis in the special on Luke's, on, on Rey's relationship with Luke, because obviously Luke was her master in The Last Jedi. But there's no acknowledgement at all of the fact that Leia was her master between the events of The Last Jedi and The Rise of Skywalker, which was for a much more substantial period of time. So really, that should be the defining like master-apprentice relationship for her, rather than the one with Luke. And yeah, there's no acknowledgement of that here. Yeah, I think that's what, and again, we are aware we're talking about a Lego <laughs> special <laughs> and it's not canon. But I'm just thinking of like the little girls watching this, yeah. you know, that like, okay, cool, Ray's their favorite character. But then if you look back at, you know, those important master apprentice relationships throughout the Star Wars history, it's like, well, you know, you could just throw in a few more female characters for their benefit. Um, and yeah, that this is again coming back to like the issues of trust that we have. But like, you know, on paper, Leia being Rey's master, great because Rey doesn't have enough relationships with other female characters. You know, we don't even have her interaction with Rose. But like, you then have to emphasize that as important as, or if not more than important more important than her relationship with Luke because I know that's like a core element of the Last Jedi. But then, yeah, judging by the time of the time that's spent in The Last Jedi compared to Tross, it's like Leia would have been a huge part of her life. And the fact that we see them as the ghosts at the end looking on, like Leia's meant to be as important to her, but it's not it's not really acknowledged here, which is a shame because, you know, Jedi Leia could have been really cool. We get that flashback in The Rise of Skywalker, but fans are going to want more. Anyway, it's Lego, so I'm aware I sound ridiculous, okay? Just putting that out there. I'm just like, you know, if we're talking about the good things, we also need to talk about like, oh, it would have it would have been cool to see more female characters kicking ass because, you know, I, I did love Luke and his blue milk. That was really <laughs> yeah. cute. But seeing 19-year-old Leia would have been really fun too. Exactly. And I also feel like if they have, like, the time and the inclination to include like at least four different versions of Luke. I counted at least four different versions of Luke anyway. Then they have time to like include a speaking role for at least one version of Leia. I'm sorry. Yeah, it would have been quite cool to see all the different layers of a different costumes throughout the film. Yeah. Like 
yeah, she goes through so much development. And if if she's Ray's master too, I wonder how much he even knows about Leia's history compared to Luke's. Exactly. And it was also quite funny because watching the special and obviously there's all this like Luke hero worship and Ray going like, oh, Master Skywalker. Oh, I helped Luke Bastard Skywalker on the trench run. Oh, you know, she's very <laughs> excited. And in my head, I'm just thinking, God, The Last Jedi has really poisoned my mind. So you think, I think I really don't like Luke. You know, I, feel, I think Luke's a bit of a dick. <laughs> you know, the thing about I think all of that stuff is the reason why Luke doesn't like himself very much at that point. He's like, well, I, I've, I'm a bit overblown. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm just a person and I was made into this symbol and... Oh, look what's happened. Yeah. So basically I wanted the um, holiday special to be more postmodern. That's what I needed, more postmodernism. <laughs> um, yeah, on, on a brighter note about the thing, I loved Palpatine in this special. Oh, he was... Ridiculous. He was perfect. He was beautiful. Less talky talky, more fighty fighty. Yeah. I honestly think Tross would have been improved if the characterization of Palpatine here had been transferred to Tross. <laughs> yeah. It was very fun. It was just very delightful. Silly. And there's lots of great banter and interactions between like the various Felinus characters. Like um, Palpatine Vader, like hiding in a closet and looking on at Kylo and wondering who this doofus is and why he's shirtless, <laughs> <laughs> teasing him about his dumb mask. <laughs> yeah. It is quite funny to see because this is essentially what they do in the movies. Like the the bad characters, you know, if they're at the top, they kind of just drop whoever's not serving them anymore, right? So it's yeah. like, oh, sorry, Vader, you're old news. Kylo's. <laughs> Kylo's the new apprentice. He'll do whatever I <laughs> Kylo say. Kylo Ren is my new best friend. <laughs> yeah, it's really funny. And my <laughs> one of the best gags in the whole thing was at one point Palpatine pulls down this like orc chart showing like the level of precedence where he's at the top above <laughs> the supreme leader. And so you have Palpatine, Kylo, Vader, and then like an assortment of like officers, and they all have these like terrified expressions. <laughs> and yeah, I love that gag. It was great. Um, and yeah, there's also a beautiful, touching, heartwarming moment where Kylo goes spinny spinny in Palpatine's throne, which I thought was just beautiful <laughs> because, yeah. And, and again, I sound ludicrous. It's fucking Lego, but like, there's lots of emphasis on like Kylo being like really childish and like really like vulnerable and easily manipulated by Palpatine, and that made my heart hurt. So. I know I can't think about that stuff too much because it's like <laughs> obviously it's being played for laugh but I'm like this poor boy <laughs> look at this little baby he was just being manipulated and he's not that smart <laughs> and he just wants the girl I love that he's not that smart <laughs> it's true though and I also um loved how intensely Kylo Ren hates Luke in this version you know, and the fact that they really like played on that, it was great. Like my favorite line in the whole thing might be, "I'm good with throwing my uncle Luke down a reactor, but Grandpa <laughs> Vader too." <laughs> this is golden. Well, I, after the Last Jedi, again, it kind of gave us the stuff that we wanted from Tross that we kind of thought would happen in terms of the acknowledgement of Luke as his uncle. Who, I mean, he says it at the end of the movie, right? See you around, kid, and then, and then he doesn't. So it was nice to see those two characters interacting again. Yeah, exactly. So what we're saying is that the Lego special gave us a lot of the great stuff that the Rise of Skywalker <laughs> did not. So yeah, it was quite an achievement. Um, 
Yeah, just needed more rows, as always. Yeah, exactly. It's definitely flawed, and it could have been much improved in various respects. But I think for what it is, it's really enjoyable. Mm-hmm. I'd recommend it if you just want something silly. Yeah, exactly. And I think more than anything else, I just really enjoyed spending time with the sequel trilogy characters again. Exactly. It was really nice, wasn't it? Yeah. I didn't expect to enjoy that part of it so much. It was like, oh, I haven't haven't watched any of these films in a while. Mm. Obviously, I still think about the characters when we're talking about them on the show and everything, but it was just nice to see them doing new things. Yeah, definitely. And honestly, watching this, it did give me that like impulse to go back and watch the sequel trilogy again. So I hopefully maybe over Christmas I'm going to have lots of free time. So yeah, I'll be able to fit in rewatches then. That would be fun. Um, mm-hmm. What else was I going to say? Um, okay. Um, yeah, so any f- final comments on the Lego special, Kirsty, or should we move on? I think we need to move on. <laughs> yep. No, this is going to be a very long episode otherwise. Um, okay, so yeah, we're going to move on to the discussion of the Mandalorian episode, which is chapter 12, The Siege. Um, so yeah, my initial hot take about this episode is I honestly preferred the Lego special, and I feel that's going to be very controversial in some circles, but that's honestly how I feel. Yeah, I guess I did too. I wasn't thinking about it. I know we got them in the same week, but they're apples and <laughs> they oranges. Are so different. Yeah, yeah, they're like vastly different, but still, like I yeah. had more fun I think watching that's... the Lego special. Yeah, we just love those characters so much, so I guess that makes sense. But I, I do think, and I, I know this will not be like a consensus. I know a lot of people really loved Chapter Twelve, and that is great for them. Uh, it was one of the weakest episodes of the show for me. Yeah, which was a real shame because I really wanted to love it because I know that Carl Weathers directed it and he seems like a really lovely guy. Yeah. And I don't know if I don't know if a lot of my problems with it were related to the direction. It was more about the writing, to be honest. Same. So Yeah, I think Carl Weathers did a really good job with the direction, you know, like the d- action scenes were well done. Like it all looked great, you know, I think in terms of the like technical aspects, it was all very effective and well done. I think, yeah, for me, it's just the story they're telling and, I don't know, some concerns I might have about the direction of the whole thing, you know, and, like, what the identity of the show is, because I'm not sure of what the show is trying to be right now, you know, and I feel it really needs to have a clearer identity. Hmm. Yeah, sorry, I'm just stuck on the quality of the writing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I know what you mean. I know it sounds ridiculous because this is a franchise that has not really ever been known for its strong writing. <laughs> like, you know, that's not Star Wars' jam, really. But I just think... I don't know if Favreau is, like, just sat in a room writing by himself or if he does have a team. But the writing is really mediocre, guys. Like... I think the writing across the board in The Mandalorian is not great. It's just it's more obvious in some episodes than others. Yes. Like, this is one of them that it really does stand out to me as a major weakness. Like, it just feels bland. And I can barely remember anything that happened. I've watched it twice. Yeah. And and I find myself, like, getting bored of the story uh, during both viewings. Mm. And, you know, getting distracted. And I'm like, this shouldn't be happening. Like, I'm interested in the show. I'm enjoying it. But I'm struggling to be invested in yet another one of these little missions. And 
And I'm sure because of that, I miss a lot of the interesting details and tidbits and references, but none of that matters ultimately if the actual story isn't grabbing me. Yeah. So I feel like, would you agree that Chapter 10, The Passenger, is your favourite episode of the season so far, Christy? Yes, but I don't think that's the majority opinion. Yeah, I feel like it's quite an outlying opinion, but I want to make a case for why we really like the episode and like an episode like this much less. And I think it's because the passenger, it's not relying on the dialogue, you know? Mm. That's not an important element of the episode. Exactly. Like, yeah. because obviously Frog Lady is nonverbal. Like, she communicates through mannerisms and those cute little noises she makes. Baby Yoda's nonverbal. And so Mando is making the occasional comment here and there so that the audience can follow along. But that there's you're not invested because of what the characters are saying you're invested because of the situations the characters are in and the chemistry between the characters which is created without the dialogue and so i think that's when the show is at its strongest when it's able to do that and yeah as kirsty says because the character interactions and in the writing they just don't feel very authentic or like well thought out i guess like an episode like this one falls down a bit for us yeah, and as I say, I really want it to grab me. Like, I went in excited, and it just felt a little too... I think it's when you get too many of these episodes in a row where he's doing the side mission stuff. Yeah. Like, it was so similar to what they were doing with Bo-Katan the week before that I was like... I just... I found it redundant. It, again, it's like sh- shooting at stormtroopers down corridors. Like, I know that's a lot of fans jam and that's great for them but i'm not going to pretend to be enthusiastic about that yeah and again it's not down to like carl weber's doing a bad job because they're all like the standalone directors so they're working on their episode and not necessarily i'm guessing privy to what's going on in the previous chapter or whatever yeah especially because you know this is the first episode of the season that carl weber's and gina carano have been in so you know i don't know if we'll see more of them this season but I don't know what context Carl Weathers goes into this episode working on it with. Like, if it is, if he's aware of, like, that adventure of the week feel, which I know a lot of fans love, and that's great. It's just it gets a little too much for me. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what was I going to say? Um, yes, I must say, when I was watching this episode, like my heart sunk a bit when like Mando obviously meets up with um, Grief and Kara and I think like Mando's obviously like, asking for help or like information or something and they say we'll help you if you do this for us and I was like oh no not again <laughs> not again <laughs> like, every time because that has happened every episode this season so far apart from The Passenger and even in The Passenger that happened a bit because right at the outset obviously the thing that he has asked to do is to transport the passenger. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It felt a bit more organic in that episode somehow. And At least he's going the way that he wants to go and he's just helping someone along the way. Yeah, no, that's true. I think that's the difference. And yeah, it's just becoming dangerously formulaic at this point. I really need something to happen to mix the whole thing up. Um, yeah, the Mandalorian just desperately needs a disruptor, I think. I think we're just not its audience yeah <laughs> I, I think that's safe to say like and i i don't want to be too hard on it because i am still enjoying the show 
And there are aspects of this episode I really enjoyed. Like, as usual, the Baby Yoda stuff was the best stuff in the episode. Oh, yeah, Baby Yoda was great. Yeah, like, Baby Yoda going to school. Like, who could hate that? You know, you'd have to be a complete monster to look at that and, like, have any feelings of animosity. Um, Baby Yoda eating blue macarons. The the 2009 fashion blogger vibes are strong, guys. I appreciated that. That was an aesthetic. Like in my mind, I think what I was thinking is, God, that's really fancy snacks for a little kid to have. Right. (laughs) You know, that was going through my head. So I'm a grown ass woman. I can't afford macarons. (laughs) (laughs) There's this bakery near where I used to work, and I used to get. Oh, the pistachio one's my favourite. Oh, so But good. yeah, I wonder what blue milk... We haven't been to Galaxy's Edge, so we don't know what blue milk tastes like. Yeah. So I don't know if it's meant to be like fruity or chocolatey or whatever, but they look delicious. Yeah. And it's just a shame he threw them up later. <laughs> that did look like a very authentic baby moment, though, because I've like been to see friends of babies before, and when the babies have thrown up, it's literally been that exact thing. And it's like, yeah. that's gross, but adorable. So... <laughs> And Mando wiping him up with his own clothing. <laughs> Been there for sure many times. Super relatable. <laughs> so yeah, I loved all the Baby Yoda stuff. But of course, when he goes on these missions, he leaves Baby behind. So we get the little, you know, obviously they, they pan back to where Baby is occasionally. And I appreciate them. But they're not like the core of the story. Mm. So so yeah, I'm enjoying those little parts, but it's the rest of it that I'm just like, I feel my eyes start to glaze over a bit. Yeah, and like, I don't want to dwell on this too long because we've spoken about Gina Carano in the past and honestly, it's kind of an exhausting topic at this point. But like, even aside from her shitty behavior on social media and the mean discriminatory comments she's made, I think this episode sealed the deal for me that I just don't buy her in Star Wars you know, she just doesn't have it as an actor. And I feel mean to say that because obviously you can't say something like that and it not be personal, basically. But she is good in the action scenes. You know, of course she is. Like, she's clearly very strong. She's very physically capable. So I buy her in all of those aspects. But I think the moment she's asked to, like, show emotion or to, like, interact with the world, it just feels inauthentic to me and I don't buy it. So... Yeah, I, that was another barrier to me buying into this episode, to be honest, because Kara is so central to it, especially in the second half, where it's all about showing Kara saving the day in action sequences. And I was just ultimately like, I, I couldn't care less about any of this. I'm sorry. Yeah, she's very wooden. Yeah. And so when I when that happens with an actor, you know, you. When you're watching it, you want to have that immersive experience. So you're kind of rationalizing it in your mind. Like, okay, so maybe this is just what the character's like. She's a bit repressed and she doesn't show her, you know, she doesn't show her emotions because she has this history of being in in the rebellion and, and now she's with people she doesn't necessarily know very well and she's trying to save their skins and everything. But that can only get you so far. Yeah. And the reality is that I just don't think her performance is very strong. Yeah. So like and I, I so I feel like and again it's not fair because Cole Weathers is a very experienced actor you know like with lots of great parts behind him but I feel like when you see Cole Weathers and Gina Carano walking side by side and they're like going through the market on the planet for example you know and I believe that Cole Weathers is interacting with that world you know and I believe he knows what he's talking about and whereas Gina Carano I just feel like she's being bolted onto it and I don't 
buy her as part of the Star Wars universe. You know, I'm sorry, I feel really mean. I don't like doing this. You know, it's a shame, but yeah. Well, it breaks the scene, doesn't it? So even if one actor is doing a good job, if one of them isn't, it's just like that's what you're going to focus on, unfortunately. Exactly. I think the the only reprieve for me is that I think the manner in which the episode ended made me think that we're not going to see Kara at least for a few episodes. So that's a plus. <laughs> Yeah, that does seem to be the pattern as well, doesn't it? That you hear about a character or you see them doing something intriguing and then it's not going to be followed on the next episode, at least. Yeah, exactly. I am becoming increasingly dubious that we will see Boba Fett again this season. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine that's the ultimate troll if they do that. (laughs) I love that. Just Boba Fett staring grimly into the middle distance. Like, and... Well, it would be amazing if, say, Mandalorian like ends up getting six seasons or something, and like we're on season six, and people are still waiting for Boba to show up again. <laughs> but the nature of Star Wars is they could have him show up in something else entirely. <laughs> oh God, he have to be in Mandalorian. I know it's not it's not novel now because, of course, you have the MCU in that, where things like pay off in potentially an entirely different part of the story. But then for me, it's like. It does end up weakening the thing that it started out in because it's like, well, that 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 development and that arc doesn't pay off within that story. Yeah. Um. But we'll see. We'll see what they choose to do. Um. I did like grief cargo being all like grandpa with baby yoda like being protective of him and like, oh, I hope he's taking care of you and everything. That was sweet. <laughs> yeah. No, he's lovely. And yeah, like I, I also did like the way that he's cleaned up the town as well. It was almost like a Disney style village. <laughs> That's true. You know, it's like wow, did, it feels like they're in a theme park. <laughs> did you notice the statue of IG in the background? Oh no, I did not. That's really nice. I saw it and I, I was happy to see him, but I hope there's one of Quill as well. Yeah. Because he made a big sacrifice for Baby Yoda. That makes me wonder how much time has passed between season one and season two. You know, <laughs> someone's got to commission the statue. Someone's got to build the statue. Yeah. So I feel like it's got to have been at least a few months then. Wow. Yeah. I'm sure this was the intention, but I did find it quite funny how super obvious it was that that alien dude was going to do something fishy with the razor crest while while fixing it. (laughs) I I honestly feel like the Mandalorian, like, I I like him, he's a good protagonist, but he's a bit of a lovable lovable idiot sometimes. Yeah, why would he trust, he knows that they're on the run, and it's like, oh, well, these are griefs people, so I can trust them. It's like... What? It's like, baby, no, you really, really can't. <laughs> You've gone back to the planet where they last saw... I guess because he thinks that Gideon's dead at this point, maybe. Mm. But, yeah, does he really not think that there's a, there's a pressing threat? Yeah. Maybe not. I also feel like the decision to leave Baby Yoda in this schoolroom at the beginning was dubious. And I know they acknowledge in the dialogue that Mando's reluctant to leave the baby there and... Grief and Kara are both very reassuring and say, no, baby will be absolutely fine. It's okay. Um, But yeah, again, he gives up that fight pretty easily, given how invested he is in that child. Um, Yeah. But yeah, obviously that's like a plot machination because, yeah, it's difficult to do action when you've got a little baby. But I, on- I'll be okay with that because I love the school stuff. Yes. I thought that was really sweet. No, that's true. Like, And I also loved seeing a protocol droid as the teacher. That was very nice. It made mm-hmm. me think about baby Ben Solo, of course. Uh, they mention Chandrilla as the capital they of the do. New Republic in the lesson. That's where baby Ben Solo is right now. Exactly. He's there with his robot nanny. 
So, yeah, who has recently tried to murder him, I believe. (laughs) (laughs) And there was that little girl whispering with the Rayburns. Yes, oh my god. Oh, I bet we'll find out in a novel, Kirsty. That's going to be Ray's mother. Oh my god. (laughs) I'm sorry. Don't ruin it. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm I'm evil. I'm very evil. Um, It was just nice to see little kids interacting, because we did get a bit of that in Chapter 4, but I don't think this many... Or for like such a long time. Maybe I'm wrong. There were quite a few of them playing with Baby Yoda when he was eating the frog and that. But it was nice to see them in a school setting. Yeah, no, definitely. There were lots of children. Like I put up a smart-ass comment on Twitter about how it's the most children we've seen in Star Wars since the Jedi Temple Massacre. <laughs> mm. um, which might not be accurate because I must say I'd forgotten about Chapter 4. And you're right, there are lots of children in that episode. Um, but yeah, there are certainly a lot of them here, and that is unusual for Star Wars, because children are usually not even seen, let alone heard in Star Wars. What did you think about seeing the Mithril again? The Mithril? Is that the blue guy? That... Yes. <laughs> you're very. I don't know if that's his name or if that's the name of his species, but that's what they call him. Right, so. yeah, no, you're very good at remembering these details, Kirsty. I, I watch it with subtitles, so that helps. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, no, I thought he was fine. Like, I'd honestly forgotten (laughs) him. Like, the first time I watched the episode, I watched it without the recap at the start. And then, obviously, I watched it again with the recap. And I was like, oh, that's where he's from. (laughs) Because, obviously, I could recognise from the way the characters were interacting with him that he was, like, a returning character, you know, who'd been in the show before. Um, But I didn't remember where he'd been seen before. Oh, okay. He really stuck in my mind. I don't know if it's just because he was in the opening of the show, but he, he makes a l- reference to Life Day at one point. Yes. Which Synergy between this and the Lego special. <laughs> exactly. And he just kind of cements the initial brutality or badassery, whatever you want to think about it, like uh, of Mando as like the bounty hunter, you know, like he he's making these pretty weak excuses to try and escape and get around the ship and then mando just kind of finds him and puts him in carbonite <laughs> in this pretty cold way yeah i did like his little comment about um how he'd like partially lost his sight in one eye because of the carbonite freezing <laughs> and i was like i i feel like there's lots of moral questions to be asked here but we're not gonna have time for that but yeah it's funny when they just like walk in and he looks at mando and is so frightened <laughs> that he like emits that i don't even know what it is some <laughs> vapor kind of, like, Yeah. Oh no! What's gonna happen now? Yeah, no, that was really funny and definitely a nice touch. Um, yeah. So, what did you think about the Imperial base? Like the apparently quite fully functional Imperial base with lots of staff that's just been chilling on this planet, like left undisturbed. I was. I guess I was just a bit. I'm a bit baffled by how things work at this point because the fact that grief can kind of just, you know take over the town like install a school in where that bar used to be um and you know make Kara the marshal of the town and all of this stuff which was you know that stuff's great but then you realize when they go out on this mission that there's this imperial base right there and i guess it's meant to be a bit secretive so they're not supposed to know about it i'm kind of confused by it all yeah like, th- but they're just they're cloning people there. <laughs> yeah, it's like they did say it was like secretive, but they clearly know exactly where it is, and they like just rock straight up, and there's no guards there or anything. It all seems like quite relaxed. <laughs> it's like, mm. yeah, it's it's very strange. So I feel like in the last episode they did a good job of representing the imperial presence, 
because you did get a sense in that episode that the Imperials were just like stragglers, you know, and they weren't like a big presence at this point. They'd mostly been wiped out, but there's like these few stubborn little factions that are persisting, despite the fact that they've lost the fight, essentially. Like, whereas in, in this one, it felt like the like the Empire from the original trilogy was still around, not much had changed. You know, and I I just wish there would be a bit more coherence, I guess, in how that stuff is framed. Mm. And in terms of just all of this stuff, once they get to that base, I I really I don't know how much I can even recall. Yeah. In terms of like, I know that there's that point where they're like over the lava, and Fish Guy has to press a button or something to make it safe, and they're they're in an elevator at some point, and. You see one of the production and, you know, crew in the background of one shot. <laughs> That's unfortunate. <laughs> oh my god, I love it though. Um, but yeah, no, you're right. Like that whole latter half of the episode is very blurry in my mind. I don't have a very clear recollection of it. And I guess the big thing is when they get to the the actual lab part and yes. play the holo- hologram and then realise that Gideon's still alive and Mando leaves. and Yeah. No, definitely. That's the big plot stuff. And I feel like that's what everyone's talking about coming out of this episode, you know, because that I guess that is the stuff that has the biggest implications for the big picture, you know, of the show and what the story might look like for the future. Um, basically, the idea is that Dr. Pershing, who was some um, with Werner Herzog, who I'm not going to say his character's name. He is just Werner Herzog. And that's a Star Wars character in my mind. No one can change that. Um, yeah, so Dr. Pershing is there in hologram and he's talking about how like he was using Baby Yoda's blood, essentially, and trying to transfuse it into donors. Yeah, so there's like a creature in a tank, basically, that I must say I think they're strongly implying is like a Snoke prototype. I honestly, I wasn't sure. <laughs> okay, this is embarrassing to admit. I found it really hard to make out what was in the tanks and I... I actually texted you, like, is Gideon cloning himself? I was like, <laughs> Sorry. am I supposed to be able to deduce what's going on here? Or is it meant to be ambiguous? I honestly couldn't tell. I do think it's meant to be a bit ambiguous in the sense that they don't want to make it completely clear what they're looking at. Basically, I think there's meant to be an element of mystery. But at the same time, there are heavy hints that it's a Snoke thing. Okay, I'm just a bit confused because... Again, like building this up as a mystery seems a bit strange to me because even last year when once the Rise of Skywalker had come out and then it, everyone was theorizing, it's like, well, gee, I wonder what they want with Baby Yoda. It's obviously like they're, they're cloning of some kind. Yeah. And it has to be either Snoke or Palpatine, surely, because that's what's going on in the in the sequel trilogy timeline. Yeah. like, And I think this is one of the things I'm most apprehensive about in terms of the Mandalorian. And that's the question of what is the ultimate point of this show? What is the story they want to tell with the Mandalorian? Is this a show about a Mandalorian and this cute little baby that he's trying to protect and trying to get to its rightful home? Or is this a story about laying the groundwork for the events of the sequel trilogy and laying the groundwork for Palpatine's ultimate master plan in attempting to come back to life and find a new body and a new host that he can control? If they do all that, they run the risk of really losing my interest because I just don't care about that stuff. Yeah, like the the heart of the show is that relationship between the Mandalorian and the baby. As you say, that's the core of the show and I want to have that developed. Yes. Um, and it's not to say it won't happen, but I think maybe they're trying to 
juggle too many things at once. You think about all the different threads that are being set up. And as I said earlier, it might be possible for them to pick up those threads in different stories, but then it means how does this show stand on its own and what's what's the overall quality and impression of the narrative that you're left with? Yeah. So I feel like if like I were to have creative control of The Mandalorian and were to decide how to steer it from here, which obviously is not the case and will never happen, but if that were the case, I'd keep it focused on The Mandalorian's relationship with Mandalore and him like wrestling with that question of his identity and what is a Mandalorian and what factions of the Mandalorian culture is he going to align himself with, you know, and have that be the overarching story you know, alongside this core story of him protecting this little creature who needs his help, basically. So I feel like you can have the bigger picture stuff come in in that way. But if you start drawing in like Palpatine's machinations and like Snoke prototypes and like the emergence of the First Order, I think they'd just be drastically overreaching and it would just become so lost, you know, like there wouldn't be any coherence or clear direction to what's going on. So I'd be very wary if they went down that path, basically. So I do think it's possible to have a drama about those things, you know, about the formation of the First Order and whatever's going on with Palpatine. But you need a completely separate story about that, you know, where you can like build up in such a way where it actually has narrative interest and it's compelling you know for dramatic reasons because i feel like here you're just meant to be invested because oh that's something that links to a movie and the movies are more important than the tv so i'm invested and that shouldn't be enough there should be more than that yeah and it kind of surprises me really because thinking about the rise of skywalker like even the movie itself doesn't care too much about the cloning yeah like it's kind of just a throwaway thing at the beginning i think one of the editors said in an interview right after the movie's release, they were like, oh yeah, we just threw the Snokes in at the beginning <laughs> to kind of make things look a bit more spooky. and Pickled Snokes. <laughs> yeah, so Sorry. like, you know, Palpatine or being all like, oh, well, I created Snoke. It's not meant to be this huge pivotal reveal that you then focus on. It's just kind of setting the scene for the rest of the movie that Palpatine's been behind everything. But I don't care about that. I didn't realize the movie was meant to make me care about it because it's not the story. So if that's going to then be a hook for Mando, I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I, I do think sometimes I'm just like, maybe Star Wars isn't for me anymore. <laughs> Not that it's like yeah. bad. It's just like some of the things that get picked up as like avenues for the story or things to focus on. And I'm clearly missing something because a lot of fans really are interested in these things. So I'm like, maybe it's just not for me. Like, and that's fine. Yeah. I just, I, I can't be enthusiastic about that stuff because the movie didn't succeed in making me enthusiastic about it. Yeah. And I think this is why we desperately need more shows than The Mandalorian because right now we're only getting Jon Favreau's expression of Star Wars and his understanding of what Star Wars is and should be. And I I think that The Mandalorian has a lot of merits but I think it is heavily, heavily reliant on the iconography of the original trilogy and it's very much about appealing to your nostalgia and like these very like traditionally nerdy concepts of what stars is and should be you know it makes these assumptions about what the viewers are interested in seeing and what will get them excited and i don't think those are always good assumptions 
So yeah, like I, I really want to see like Deborah Chow's take on Obi Wan, for example. You know, so I feel mm. like that's going to be much more creatively interesting to me than yeah, what John Favreau is doing. But like, I, I sound really down on this, and I don't want to be because again, as we've said, there are aspects of the episode we really enjoyed, and there have been episodes of the season that we've really, really enjoyed. Um, so yeah, I don't want to be a total downer. Yeah, I, I want the show to do better and I want the show to clearly establish what sort of story it's going to be. You know, because right now it just feels a bit all over the place. And it's weird, it both feels all over the place and also excessively formulaic. So it's like this weird tension between two completely different things. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I think you're right in that we almost kind of just wanted to go back to its roots and like focus on the central relationships and like get some development in there yeah i think it's trying to do that alongside a lot of other things and as as a result that stuff kind of gets a bit washed out and it's a shame because there will be these glimmers of really intriguing things like the revelation that bokatan makes to din and i trust that it will be picked up again but i don't know if they're going to have time to go into the depth that i would really love to see because there's all this other stuff too. Yeah. And to me, that stuff is the heart of the show. Like Din's development, his reintegration into society, the the human relationships that he forms and the relationship that he's forming with Baby Yoda that's like changed the trajectory of his life. Yeah. Uh, and his relationship to, you know, his cultural identity, what it means for him to be a Mandalorian, all of that stuff is really interesting to me. I just don't know if it's going to be given enough of the time that they have because they want to pull at all of these different threads and I guess appeal to all of these different kinds of fans and their their specific interests, but yeah, I wonder how it'll feel as a finished project as a result. Exactly. So I think I'm also nervous because obviously Ahsoka is clearly coming up and I think the biggest mistake they could make is to suddenly have it become the Ahsoka showcase show. <laughs> you know? like Which hopefully wouldn't be like an extended thing. I think there's a real risk of that being the case for Filoni's episode, because obviously Filoni really loves Ahsoka, which is like, fair enough, you created her, I understand the attachment. Um, but yeah, like, it's a show called The Mandalorian, it's not a show called Ahsoka Tano, it's not a show called Snoke Prototype, it's not a show called Palpatine's <laughs> Master Plan. It's called The Mandalorian, it should be about The Mandalorian. <laughs> so, Well, this is the thing, like, if they were always going in the direction of, like, well, the Imperials wanted Baby Yoda for these reasons, like, that stuff makes sense, it's what plenty of us were speculating on last year, it's just what does that mean for the Mandalorian and Baby Yoda and does it matter? Like, yeah. that's what I'm interested in. What implications does that stuff have for the main characters? And if it doesn't turn out to be much, then I'm not sure why I should care within the confines of this story. Yeah. it's Like you said, it's it's just not enough for me personally that, oh, that's that happened in another part of the story. Like, that's not why I, I watch Star Wars. I don't care about references to endless other things. <laughs> So it, it does. it's never going to make me hate the show because I don't feel strongly enough about it for that. It's just like, meh, it's not for me, which, you know, will be a shame, but it's, you know, I'll, I'll enjoy the little baby Yoda cuteness. Exactly. But I, yeah. I, I would love to see Mando develop as a character. That's kind of what it comes down to. Yeah. They need to look back to chapter 10 because I think that's where the show feels most distinctive and where the show most clearly has its own singular identity, like as its own thing, where it's not like harking back to other aspects of star wars constantly 
you know this is the thing though i'm not sure most fans feel about it the way we do yeah i feel like we've got quite a unusual perspective perhaps but like they clearly included that story for a reason you know so they clearly did see the need and the importance of having that kind of narrative in star wars and Mm. yeah like i like even if we were to get like two or three episodes like that per season i'd persist in watching for that sort of content to be honest yeah same yeah bring back frog lady that's the answer um and yeah just quickly (laughs) because i want to end this discussion on a positive baby yoda as an electrician like my heart that was beautiful although i do have questions about the safety of that exactly very (laughs) responsible parenting (laughs) it's like i don't know it just made me think about like a human parent like putting their toddler in I don't know, like an electrical circuit board and like saying, oh, connect the wires, sweetie, you can do it. <laughs> it's like, that feels bad, but it's also yeah. really funny. So yeah. I... <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> I enjoyed it on that level. So apparently the stuff with Gideon at the end. Oh yeah, of course. Which, oh, I loved the the female Im- Imperial they had there. She was badass. Yes, same. That was also in my notes. I loved her. I, I Yeah, I hope we see her again. Um, yeah, the Gideon stuff. I got again. This is just me being stupid, and maybe I was just watching. You're it not being too late stupid. I had no idea. Either. I was okay. So I was watching it. And I was, for a second, I was like, "Is he in the lab where they just were?" But like, no, of course he can't. But it's just the way like he was looking at this big row of stuff. I was like, "Is he cloning himself? What's going on here?" And I had to find an article that was saying something about how he has these things called dark troopers. Yes, is that, is that's that right. They're from a video game. Okay. Yeah. So, so I was like, uh, so I thought that he was looking at the clones, and I thought that was part of that story. But I guess this is like another tease to something that will eventually pay off. But I'm like, again, it just doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah, exactly. I feel like again, it's one of the things I feel the show needs to be very careful about because there's lots of wowzer moments where they draw heavily on the assumption that all oh, the fans will love this. And in reality, how many people have played that video game? I'm sure a lot of people have because it's Star Wars and it's popular, but I certainly have not. And I had no idea that those troopers were a thing. Apparently they're like Force-sensitive troopers, like to a weak extent. They're not like Jedi level, but they have some Force abilities. Okay, so this is what's confusing me. So is the cloning going... Like, they mentioned the M count from Baby Yoda. Like, they obviously want his blood because it has the force in it or the midichlorians or whatever so is that related to those troopers or is that something completely different i get the impression it's probably related i i think they're probably doing various different experiments with like the force and with the m count (laughs) sorry it sounds so dumb um to like try various different things so i'm not sure for example if like there would there would be any consciousness of the fact they needed to create like a host body for Palpatine at this point Mm. you know like I have no idea hopefully they don't go there because yeah as we discussed it's not the place for it um but yeah like I I I mean even this the Snoke stuff's confusing me too because I I just don't think the timeline of anything adds up or like what they've said before about you know jj has said before like snoke used to be a handsome young man and then obviously that went out the window with <laughs> tross and like saying that palpatine created him and you see the tanks of him as that disfigured old man 
But then we have the comic with the rise of Kylo Ren where like he goes to him and says, oh, what did Luke do to you? Implying that like Luke attacked him and changed his physical appearance somehow. Mm. I don't know. I'm driving myself crazy. And <laughs> it's a path to madness. I don't, yeah, I don't actually care about it. That's the thing. But like the show is making me like, wait, but that doesn't fit. So if it does turn out to be Snoke, I guess I'm just interested in like the timeline of like, could, does this mean that Palpatine has already successfully cloned himself and is walking around somewhere? <laughs> is he already on Exegol? Is Palpatine Jr. like just around, chilling somewhere, falling in love with Jodie Comer? <laughs> At what point does is Rey born? She's not born yet, is she? I don't think so. I think Ben's about five. So like okay, Rey's so like in five years the... in the future. Okay. Yeah, so... Yeah, like my head's honestly hurting from Is trying it Ray's to dad in that tank? <laughs> oh god. But that's where I'm at. I'm just like, are they gonna try to connect all this stuff with Ray ultimately? Because I know as we were discussing the the holiday special, we were like, okay, they're not acknowledging Ray Palpatine there, but at some point they will. Yeah. Does all this stuff lead to Ray? Is that the idea? Is Daisy Ridley gonna be watching this and be like, Oh So that's how I came about? Weird. <laughs> yeah. It's like at the very least, I want them to at least give me a Ray who was not the product of some like bizarre genetic experiment. Just like let her have parents. Who... No, uh... she's she's just let her have parents she, who uh... fell in love and had a child. She's half of a Palpatine clone. <laughs> this is the thing. Like, I didn't want to bring it all back to Tross, but apparently Mando's making me. So yeah, yeah. No, all roads lead back to Tross, unfortunately, and. <sighs> Uh, it's very weary, re- wearisome, I think it's safe to say. And yeah, and I guess with me also, like, I want to understand the, like, where the First Order comes into all of this, you know, so I know that the First Order are out in, like, the unknown region somewhere, but presumably all these, like, experiments of cloning and stuff, that, that's got to, like, that research has got to pass over to the First Order eventually, because Snoke is in control of the First Order? I don't know. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the only thing I have to go on there is the the last Jedi novelization where he has that like inner monologue about who they thought would end up leading the First Order, and it was like, oh, people thought it might have been Ray Sloan, but it wasn't. It was me. I just kind of came out of nowhere, and I guess he did. <laughs> so Palpatine yeah. just sends him off, and somehow he like asserts himself as the leader of the First Order but he just kind of comes out of nowhere and everyone just accepts it. <laughs> okay freaky looking force wielding dude and getting good vibes. And does Snoke have free will or is he just a puppet? Yep. Is Mando going to be the show that actually answers this stuff? Because I don't... Maybe we'll get the movie Kirsty in... Snoke Star story. But none of that <laughs> stuff matters to these characters and that's what it comes down to for me. Yep. No, I don't see how they could bring it around in a way that, aside from yeah, obviously they want Yoda's blood, but I don't know beyond that, like the danger that Baby Yoda is in over that reason. I just don't know why it would matter to Din. Yeah, and I think that's the crux of it, isn't it? Is that it feels so disconnected from the main stuff going on with Mando and Baby, like they don't feel like a very immediate threat. You know, like even in this episode where the Mandalorian, when he realizes that Moff Gideon is still alive, he like immediately goes to fetch Baby Yoda from the school. There's like no consequences to that because he goes to the school, Baby Yoda's fine, he picks him up, all's good. You know, there's no consequences to the decision to leave the baby there. And yeah, they need to like create more stakes 
if we're meant to feel real threat because of the scenario, you know, this idea that they need the baby for his blood. Because right now, I'm not feeling that. I guess they think that it's enough that we know the Razor Crest is being tracked and mm. they know that Baby Yoda is still with him. So it'll just be a matter of time before they catch up with him. And presumably at that point, Bo-Katan comes back in and there's the whole issue with the Darksaber. I know I'm saying this with like, I haven't seen the, how the show's going to play out, but I'm like, how is it all going to tie together? And maybe that's the question they want me to be asking right now, but I'm just thinking there's an awful lot of threads. Yeah. And to put that alongside the necessary character development, um, I'm, I just, I'm just a little skeptical. Exactly. So one thing I will say though, is that the trailer for the show, like it only showed footage from episodes up to this one. So that means going forward, we have no idea what's coming at all. And obviously the trailer was distinctly uninformative, so we didn't know much in the first place. But we honestly know nothing about what's coming up next. So I have concerns, suffice to say. But like I'm also interested to see where they take it. And I think they can find ways of making it work if they're very careful and they don't just keep on bringing in more and more plot threads that they then need to juggle. You know, they need to show some restraint, I think. Yeah. I'm aware that we probably sound really negative to people. We are enjoying the show week by week. It's just a kind of, I don't know, like you said, kind of trying to work out what the show's identity actually is. Yeah, definitely. Because, yeah, like I say, we we don't want to be really down on it. And honestly, we are enjoying it. But I think we just need to figure out what terms we're meant to enjoy it on, basically, because that's not particularly clear right now. So hopefully by the end of the season, we'll have a clearer picture of that. Okay, cool. Um, any closing thoughts, Kirsty? Not really. Like, there's not really a sense of what'll happen next week. I guess, I guess, knowing it's Dave Filoni's episode, yeah, we'll probably see Ahsoka. Yeah, I think it's Ahsoka so. time. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there will be a lot to talk about. I think, good or bad, who knows? We will see. But yeah, so join us next time for our discussion of Chapter Thirteen. Okay, so I'm Rachel, and you can find me on Twitter at Rachel1918. I'm Kirsty, and you can find both of us on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Until next time, bye! Bye!